Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with another Edge podcast. And today we have a special guest, uh, Keller Wanzer, who is Executive Director of Silver Lining, which is a not-for-profit climate research uh, institute organization and uh, also a uh, member of the Board of Directors of uh, Biocarbon Engineering. Uh, Kelly has a really interesting background as an entrepreneur with successful exits in infrastructure software. And actually, that's how we first became acquainted. Uh, It must have been about a dozen years ago when I was an equity research analyst and we encountered her her company, ColdSpark. And uh, to my surprise, uh, many years later, uh, she was a keynote speaker at the Singularity Summit in San Francisco just uh, just a few weeks ago. So I was I was thrilled to to, to see Kelly. I I reached out because I was so fascinated by what she was talking about, which we'll get into in this podcast. But um, but with that, Kelly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Ed. I really appreciate the opportunity, um, and it's wonderful to kind of be at the intersection of technology and climate. Yeah, that's well. That let's 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 set the stage a bit. I'd love to uh, understand a bit more about you know what had shaped your views of uh, of the of the problems that you're you're now tackling with your. Uh, with your newest ventures, but uh, share a little bit about your, you know, your background and, and some of the experience that, that have been formative for you. Uh, well, my background is I spent about 20 years in IT infrastructure working in um, kind of the plumbing of messaging, uh, in security, and then in network analytics. So I like problems that are big and pervasive um, they're usually involve a lot of legacy technology, uh, and if there's a way that you can crack the nut on them, you can make a big difference to how things work. Um, and so it also took me into the arena of complex systems and how they work and how people go about trying to understand what they're doing and act on them. So, um, so those were kind of areas that I was working in. And about a decade ago, I became concerned about what looked like could be a big problem in in climate with uh, the pressure we were putting on the climate system. And I'm based in the Bay Area, so I got to know some of the top uh, climate scientists who are based here. A person at Stanford named Steve Schneider, who's no longer with us, um, but kind of a luminary. Ken Caldera, and I got to ask questions about, you know, what the where we were sitting in terms of our risk in the climate having a dramatic impact on things within our lifetime. And what they told me was that, you know, the risk was single-digit probabilities, but not low single digits that we could have uh, catastrophic outcomes in our lifetime. And so for me, that meant, well, if you had those odds of winning the lottery you'd be buying tickets. So um, we may need to look at kind of really more rapidly understanding the system and possibly any kind of emergency or intervention type measures we take 
to ensure that we're protected in case things go, you know, towards the worst scenarios. And so for me, some of the things I learned, especially in, in networking and network analytics, about trying to understand complex systems and detect problems before they happen and prevent them from happening uh, seem to apply here. So that's, um, so that's how I started to get engaged. Well, that's uh, the, certainly the scale and complexity of uh, the environment and, you know, and, and climate are of uh, you know, many, many orders of magnitude uh, more, you know, more complex than, than networking. But, uh, but, that applica- I, but I don't know anybody that's applied that um, so far. I would think it, 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 makes, it makes completely perfect sense to, um, to, to think of these uh, big systems as, in a sense, they are they are networks. <laughs> they're just they're just connected in in, uh, in in so many different ways. What what have you? Yeah. yeah. Could you talk a bit about you know how um, how you've initially yeah. applied your learn what you've learned and, and what you know and and maybe some uh, some of the insights that that, uh, that you've been able to derive from w- you know, working in, in climate research. Yeah. Well, you. I mean, you. You know, you made kind of a very interesting comment in saying you know they're like networks and things are interconnected and they're and they are they're just interconnected through even more complex processes like biology so you know part of the network in the earth system are plants and animals um, and they're acting on the system too so um, one of the ways that i started to engage on this is i worked on a project with ocean conservancy to look at um, the climate risk to the ocean and so if you take ocean as part of the earth system and maybe the most interconnected part and you want to ask the question, what is rising heat doing to the ocean? And you have all this complexity in the ocean in terms of how it moves physically and the, and the animals and biological life in the ocean. And you're trying to figure out, can we predict kind of big changes in the ocean as heat rises? And that's a really hard question. And today, a lot of times, uh, the two approaches to it are either to look at little aspects of the question, like I'm going to look at coral reefs and maybe these coral reefs and this area and what they're doing and use data for that. Or I'm going to use, you know, big climate model and try to simulate all of the interactions into one giant simulation and see if I can predict what's happening. But there are some other techniques that we use in complex systems like IT or even finance where we're trying to determine the probability of different kinds of things happening because we're going to make bets on it. And we're going to either make bets on it because it's how we set up our DevOps automation um, in the hopes that we keep the network from failing. Or we're going to make bets on it because it's where we put our money based on where we think the economy is going to go. And so there are probabilistic ways of looking at these kinds of systems that are different. And so we put together an advisory board of people who know how to do that, uh, including Martin Casado, actually, from networking, Mm. and as well as a guy named Steve Strongen, who's the head of research at Goldman Sachs, who looks at these systems questions from a finance point of view, and, and did some probabilistic modeling work on to look to look at you know could we look at the probability curves of what happens to different parts of the ocean system based on rising heat, and that work is still ongoing. 
but it's pretty exciting because there are ways of looking at these systems that are that are applied today that haven't been fully applied to these climate questions. And to me, that's a very hopeful thing. How does the uh, availability of data differ when you're looking at, at complex systems, you know, such as uh, uh, you know, such as oceans and, and and coral, for instance? I mean, how? I mean, you know, trying to analyze a a, a large, sophisticated corporate network is is no small undertaking. But I, I'd have to think that the there's there's a lot of thought and consideration that needs to to go into uh, collecting data and, and how to uh, how to treat the data that that you're collecting as as you start to build build models and, and analyze so, you know how 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 is that how is it different and what are some of the considerations that come into play when you're looking at uh, environmental data so that's a big question so I, I'm going to start by saying that's a big question <laughs> and, and I'm going to take kind of two angles on it. Um, and there are probably many more angles. But um, so one angle is um, if you think about the, the Earth as a complex system, and one, one of the complex systems we're familiar with dealing with is our own body, is our human body. And some of the situation that we're in is kind of like um, a human body under stress. You know, we've been filling it with toxins, we're getting a fever, um, and we have that kind of situation going on with, with Earth. When we're dealing with people, we have lots of people to study. We do epidemiology, we study populations of people, and we determine, oh, if their fever rises this much, these are the kinds of things that happen. And, um, here we have a patient sample of one. So one of the challenges we have in trying to determine big effects on the Earth system is we only have one Earth to study. And a second problem is, or a related kind of phenomenon, so one of the things that researchers try to do is look back at the historical record of Earth going about 500 million years and study, you know, different times that the Earth has had this much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, these kinds of characteristics where heat has risen this much, and they call that the paleontological record. So, so we try to do that, but we have a population size of one, and then when we try to go back 500 million years, our, our sources of data are pretty limited. We're using ice cores and tree rings and, and these kinds of things. So getting data on big changes to the Earth system, which in its history and at a planetary scale normally happen over tens of thousands of years, and we have applied stress in a really short period of time in Earth terms, like a couple hundred years. So, so getting, getting comparative data where we'd like to do things like, um, you know, like machine learning, we can't, those kinds of things are hard to apply because we don't have big pools of data on earth phenomena. We can use that kind of technique on parts of the system in where we're looking at, you know, cl closer periods of time where we can get data sets and use them to study, you know, for example, species behavior or, um, you know, or plant cycles or things like that. So there are certain kinds of questions where we have lots of data, and then there are some of the big questions where we really, really don't have much data. So that's one angle on the problem, which is some of the sophisticated things we like to do that are based on data, it's hard to apply to certain kinds of big questions about climate. The second angle on it is where we could 
where, where we could really use data to hone what we know about short-term effects and causes in the climate system. We're not, we haven't yet applied all of the state-of-the-art technology that we have. So if you think about uh, monitoring a data center, ne center network or a data center infrastructure where you want to have layers of monitoring going all the way down from chip level all the way up to application level, and you want to have systems that can bring that information together to detect problems or security risks and so on, that kind of multi-layered, high-resolution, sensitive capability for monitoring the climate system we haven't built that quite yet. So we have some satellites that monitor certain things. We have some, some cool stuff like buoys on the ocean and some land-based things. But there's a whole lot more we could do to improve our ability to understand what's happening in the climate system and possibly use that data to help us hone our models and forecast the climate and weather. So on the one hand, I'm telling you we've got a problem with you know patient sample of one, and on the other hand, I'm saying we could collect more um, multi-layered data on the system that could help us improve uh, our ability to understand and forecast things. No, that's that's great, and and there's no doubt that where the with the you know the growing capability of, of data collection in so many different uh, through so many different avenues, well, we do have more data than we've ever had before to analyze. Uh, now, but, but one thing that I will say, because I, I feel pretty passionately about this, is the full weight and force of what we know how to do in tech has not been applied to the climate system. Mm -hmm. The climate, climate research is more legacy than most places. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, it has been largely an academic field. Um, and so the infrastructure in climate research is mostly proprietary. So they haven't, they haven't moved to cloud adoption, which would help expand their capacity. They're slower to roll out some of the remote sensing capabilities and next generation technologies for satellites, drones, and things like that, partly because of the structural system that they're in. And partly because maybe the tech industry hasn't been engaged enough on, you know, I, I believe mobilizing what people know how to do in tech could make a big difference in how rapidly we understand climate and how rapidly we make good decisions about what to do. So could you talk a bit about what you're doing with uh, your new efforts, Silver Lining, and, and uh, you know, what are, what are some of the, uh, the goals that, uh, you know, that, are, that are underway? Sure. Yeah, thanks. I should say the processes to. to <laughs> yeah, I was talking about the big picture, but um, so you know what the coming into this problem, a big area of concern for me is the sort of near-term risks associated with the heat pressure that that's being added to the climate system by greenhouse gases. So, um, so it appears that we have, you know, some increasing probability of quite catastrophic things happening in the next 20 or 30 years associated with rising heat energy in the climate system. And I was concerned that we didn't seem to have a lot of solutions that operate on that timescale. So clean energy is wonderful and we should be investing in that like crazy. Um, and we should be investing in all manner of emissions reduction and things like re re 
reducing the impact of refrigerants, the way we handle agriculture. But most of those solutions, even if we rolled them out pretty quickly, and they usually take many decades to roll across the economy, they they operate more on a 50 to 100 year timescale to reduce the actual heat stress in the atmosphere. So CO2 lasts in the atmosphere a very long time. So even if we reduce all emissions today, there's some reasonable probability that the earth will continue to warm. So, so I came at this from the point of view of, you know, where we haven't invested anything um, as, a, as a global community is in measures that might help us address the risks that we have in the term. And um, the scientific community looked at some of these ideas for how you might counteract heat or cool the planet um, in a shorter space of time, like within a decade or two. And the National Academy of Sciences looked at this, the Royal Academy in the UK, and they sort of recommended approaches that were based on adding particles to the atmosphere to increase the amount of sunlight it reflects. And particles in the atmosphere are kind of one of the primary ways that the Earth regulates its temperature. And so when you look at the Earth from space, you see it's a bright, shiny orb, and that's sunlight bouncing off the particles and clouds in the atmosphere. And so if you add some particles, even like the ones that are already present in nature, you can increase the brightness of the atmosphere by maybe 1%, and you could offset as much as 2 degrees of warming. So these ideas um, are, you know, potentially interesting areas to explore if we're looking at a short-term heat risk. They are risky too. And since we haven't really studied them yet, we don't know whether or not they're viable solutions um, or, or how we would go about them. So silver lining is coming in from the point of view of saying we may have a serious safety issue with regard to key energy in the, in the climate system. And we think it's important that as, as a matter of urgency, we research possibilities for reducing heat quickly if we need to. And part of that research will have to include a better ability to understand and forecast climate than we have today. So if we wanna influence the ref- reflectivity of the climate system, we're going to have to be able to better understand the role that CO2 is playing in heat, the role that methane is playing, the role that other particles are playing. And we're going to have to be able to much better forecast what's happening than we do now. So that brings in all the things we were talking about, improving our ability to understand the climate. And so silver lining is, is really about accelerating R&D for intervening in climate to keep us safe and understanding the climate system better. That's a uh, that's no small undertaking, <laughs> right? And how, how does that relate to your involvement in, in biocarbon and engineering? And and do the uh, uh, are are there uh, you know cross you know capabilities that uh, that that work across both both ventures? Um, yeah, so so for me, you know, there, there are different, um, and I just heard of the wonderful Paul Hawken, who's the author of Drawdown, um, where they look at all, all different sort of manner and means of, of reducing greenhouse gases 
in the system. And he was talking about, you know, that um, it, it isn't one solution. We, we have to look at everything. And we, we need to pursue, pursue all available solutions in order to address this kind of problem. And in the case of biocarbon engineering, um, in terms of the way that, so, so what they do, what that company does is they're applying automation and AI technology to planting and managing ecosystems like forests and mangroves. And to, today, the, the technology for, you know, planting and managing ecosystems, generally speaking, is pretty legacy. It's mostly human. So man, manual capabilities for planting trees. And it's in the very early days of adopting kind of drones and other technologies for monitoring forests and ecosystems. So there's an opportunity there to use emerging technologies, drone technologies for monitoring, me measuring, and uh, forests and ecosystems and actually planting uh, seeds and pots and uh, and then using all of the data that you can generate to optimize the health and productivity of those systems. And that um, is, you know, related to the health of those systems themselves and their biodiversity and the people that they support but also at scale is very material to our planet's ability to absorb CO2 and put oxygen back into the atmosphere. So if a company like Biocarbon and technologies like that are successful, they can help accelerate our maintenance of forests and ecosystems and our planting or rewilding of, of new ones. And you know, at, at the kind of scale that's enabled by these technologies, that means in a relatively short period of time, we could, we could actually have improvements in our forests and wetlands and things like that that make a material difference to how much CO2 we can bring out of the atmosphere every year. This is a really uh, amazing dimension of, of technology that, uh, and I, I've seen a bit the, the demo and and uh there's a there's a, a a great video on the on the site but uh could you talk a bit about some of the enabling technologies now that are going to allow uh allow us to address either these you know these these massive you know problems of global scale uh, yeah. but what you know what what's 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 helping accelerate the process and 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 make real tangible impact uh, possible in um, sooner than we'd expect. As I would. So, yeah. So if you don't mind, I might talk, you know, from the bottom of the stack up. That's perfect. If that's okay. So if we start at the bottom of the stack of, you know, storage and compute. So um, the so I'll take the climate system. Uh, so, so climate research and, and climate models are the biggest consumer of compute on planet Earth. The, the only type of analysis you can do that's bigger is astrophysics if you want to study the universe. Mm. So these are, it, it takes a massive amount of computing um, as well as really efficient networks and the ability to combine uh, different types of computing processes. So you have simulation, you know, the models are using simulation techniques um, and, you know, GPU type activity and the data analysis can use more parallel processing. And so right now you have some pretty severe constraints in the amount of computing available for researchers to do this stuff. 
Um, there are two big supercomputers in the United States that support the big climate models and, and climate model research. And then a lot of the ancillary work is done on university infrastructure. And researchers actually constrain what they attempt to do by their perception of how much computing capacity they can get. So, um, so the ability to extend compute and storage capacity, but especially compute, it could accelerate uh, our ability to do science and move things along more quickly. So there are a couple of, a couple of things we, so there's one thing we already have, which is public cloud computing, which by and large the climate research community doesn't use. And partly they don't use it because there's been a perception that it won't support the kind of simulation uh, models that they're doing, which is increasingly untrue. And partly it's because of the way that their um, computing is funded, uh, which is similar to the way things used to be in the enterprise and financial services back when you, know, you have your in-house IT functions, which are quote unquote free. Um, and, and so business units, you know, are using that instead of looking externally. But it's harder for climate researchers to find ways to purchase outside resources. So, um, so I'm working with the National Academy of Sciences on um, a study to look at computing for climate research. And the public cloud computing utilization is a piece of that. Another piece of that is what will advances in, in hyperscale and exascale computing do to accelerate climate research. And so climate research really pushes the envelope on where you wanna go with the most massive computing power you could possibly have. And so, um, so driving investments in, you know, at that, at that bleeding edge of exascale computing also really helps climate research. So those are kind of the two areas at the bottom of the stack. And then as you move up the stack, or, you know, around the stack, if we think about the Internet of Things and remote sensing capabilities and, and remote actions, then this new generation of, of autonomous platforms like uh, companies like SailDrone that have autonomous platforms operating on the ocean, the new generation of drones, and especially the longer distance, higher capacity drones that can go out of further distances over the ocean, that can carry heavier instrumentation for measuring the atmosphere. Um, NOAA recently used the Global Hawk, which is the Department of Defense's stratosphere drone, uh, to put instruments and fly long distances in the stratosphere to measure stratospheric chemistry. So those kinds of capabilities, um, right now, they're, you know, very, very early days. So the question is, how can we accelerate getting those adopted so that we've got really wide spread coverage around the planet at all layers, all the way up to the satellite layer of, you know, high resolution, high frequency measurements of the kind that we want. So that's a, that's a pretty big opportunity. And then when you have, if you have the computing, you have the measurements, um, then how do we, you know, how do we get the advances in models and analytics that we want to bring it all together and help us make better forecasts and do more science? And so on that side of things, I think that, um, you know, in general, we're going to have to support, you know, the resources applied to climate research for people doing that work. But as a function of technology, there are things that there are 
there are reasons that we try to like various DevOps. So you've got the biggest systems in the world, really complex um, applications that they're trying to run, and they've got a shortage of DevOps skills. So how do we get, you know, so uh, so one of the things I'm talking to people about is the notion of could we do something like a code for climate where, you know, we, we bring coders together who want to help solve these problems with researchers who need some support in, you know, code optimization, DevOps, UI, and things like that. So I believe there's a lot of opportunity because I've experienced what tech people can do. Um, and what the tech industry is capable of to make uh, make things easier for climate research and make and make that stuff go faster. Well, it would seem that there's uh, an enormous amount of potential to harness a lot of the work that's been done in academic settings or in I guess traditional uh, traditional climate research, bringing that together with the uh, almost an, um, an open source. Uh, mindset that you know that certainly permeates the you know the the, the, the developer community are there um right. you know are there are there any uh challenges that are involved with uh with bringing you know some of that the academic work into into more of a public sphere and 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 having the work because this would seem to me that, i mean this is uh you know all of this work has just massive uh human applicability, global applicability in an open source model, uh, you know, to harness, you know, the, you know, the millions of eyes as it were, um, on the problem would be, uh, would be a logical next step. Are there, uh, are there also, I mean, you referenced having, uh, the idea of, ha you know, hacking competitions and, um, you know, what, what do you think we could do to, to kind of bring together existing expertise with, uh, you know, some of the, uh, some of the gurus and and um, and wizards on the uh, on the programming and, and implementation side. Yeah, well, so um, it, it may be sort of hacking competition. We've been talking about more of a, a maybe a platform, you know, uh, almost um, where you know where climate researchers could post projects and and people, you know, developers who wanted to help could pick them up. Um, so in that way, kind of a bit more like open source initiatives where people are contributing code to, you know, to projects for, for good reasons. So I think there's, I think there's some potential for those kinds of things to happen. And, you know, I'll try to, I'll try to keep you and the rest of the community abreast if we're able to kind of successfully launch that up. Um, because I've seen, I certainly know engineers that I've worked with and, and people around the tech community who, who care a lot about the problem. And they may have some skills that are pretty applicable to helping with it. And at the same time, some of the, t some of the technical problems are pretty cool and interesting to work on. So, you know, I think there could be a really good marriage here of those kinds of skills. And I also, you know, I'm, I'm working part of what Silver Lining does is also look at kind of how the, how the government system works and how the structural system works around the research area to see, you know, can we help shift the way things are done towards these kind of open capabilities? So public cloud, um, you know, this kind of open projects and things like that. So there's some element of, structural change that might be needed to help 
enable researchers in agency contexts and university contexts to be able to work this way more easily or at all. Um, and so it's a bit like kind of the, the changes that had to happen in the enterprise to enable, you know, public cloud adoption. So we may need to help a little bit with how things are funded and, um, and how things are structured. Are there are there some projects or organizations that you look to as you know really uh, you know gr- good examples of, of early successes or, or early wins in uh, uh, in climate science? Um, well, I would say I mean when you say climate science, I think one of the important things to emphasize is that. Um, Climate research has been largely federally funded mm-hmm. in the United States. So even the work done in universities often tracks up to you know grant sources in NOAA or NASA or NSF. Um, so it's been very much a government sector. If we think of it as a market, it's it's a government market. And um, and the U.S. is by far and away the biggest market in the world for climate research, um, even today. So, so it's um, so it probably actually has fewer um, independent, sort of independently funded or emerging projects than other spaces, because it's been it, it's been quite government driven. Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, no, that, that, no, it's that's I think that's great perspective, right? Because you you haven't had quite the same influx of of private sector venture capital yet in, in startups as, as you've yeah. had, for instance, in, uh, in you know, autonomous vehicles and, and, right. and some clean tech, right, where we had a, right. had a bit of a hybrid of uh, publicly funded research and, 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 and private investment as well. But, uh, right. but it sounds like the, you know, there's with, with growing awareness and of the, of the potential resources that are, that are out there that you might be able to Accelerate. There might be some accelerate ways to accelerate the the progress that we've seen so far. Well, certainly, what what you're doing is uh, is a is a key example of that. Yeah, and so in this case, it's a combination of trying to maybe shift the government market a little bit to make it easier for these kind of emerging technologies to to move faster in that market, and um, and also shift the philanthropic market a little bit towards looking at climate research more. Um, as an augmentation to government research and, you know, certain applications of technology to that. It's a tough space for, you know, pure commercial markets because we're dealing with a problem of the commons. You know, the whole, the whole climate problem is a problem for everyone, but it usually ranks lower on people's specific individual list. So, so in that way, you know, some of these things don't have, they don't have an immediate commercial market. Right. And so we, you have companies like SailDrone or Spire or things that would quite happily provide really relatively cheap and inexpensive ways to, you know, monitor key things. But it's generally speaking a government market or a philanthropic market to get there. Right. And well, of course, the, the work that the UN has been doing with the sustainable development goals has been mm-hmm. uh, really helpful in, in terms of coordinating efforts uh, across yeah, across borders. I uh, inter- had interviewed Aki Riazi, who is the CTO of the UN, a, a few weeks back. And it's, it's oh, great. 
it's really pretty exciting to hear how she's uh, she, she's seeing a lot of you know, truly global efforts to apply technology to uh, to tackle these sustainable development goals. And, and one of her key areas of focus is uh, was human trafficking. But uh, there's yeah. a, a massive uh, component of, of and focus on uh, sustainable water and 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 climate yeah. and, and, and and conservation as well and and I, it's, I think this is uh, it's it's super encouraging. Now, our- yeah, and and where you know because I didn't mean to be too discouraging because where the where problems can be scoped um, to specific impacts. Um, and certain impacts that have a constituency, there's a lot of progress. And so, like, there's a lot of progress. I've seen uh, several projects in the area of overfishing and monitoring ships and piracy and, and violation of, you know, fishing rules and regulations, for example. And so people are looking for ways to apply satellite data that's available now to different pieces of the problem. I think of fires and early detection of fires is another one. So, so I, so I definitely think that there are emerging, you know, and and it's, it's growing the applications of these technologies to different pieces of the problem. Yeah. And then, and then the hardest one is, you know, the system as a whole, which is climate. So, so I definitely think that's the case. And I should give a shout out to to an initiative that I really like, which is an AWS initiative called Earth on AWS. And so AWS has actually been pretty proactive in trying to, you know, do some uh, pilot work and some seed support for different initiatives, bringing data and even models onto the onto their cloud and helping sponsor research efforts that way. And one of the really key benefits um, that I, I should definitely mention isn't just uh, adding capacity in terms of compute storage, but the point that you referred to before, Ed, which is about making these things open. And that if we have big climate models and data sets on the public cloud, it makes it much easier for these things to be used by researchers around the world, uh, sort of you know, climate, uh, climate research as a service. And and to you know sort of accelerate collaboration that way. Yeah. I, uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say. I mean, I know we've had the uh, the you know the, the SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which had been a essentially crowdsourced uh, uh, data processing, as it were. And and I would think that you know any initiative that would harness the uh, you know the interest of the the tech community at, at large would be be very well received if if if, if it's focused on uh, um, on on climate, no doubt. Well, I hope so. So you know, so part of what Silver Lining is is doing is trying to help foster these kinds of initiatives that will you know that will sit at the intersection of tech uh, and climate problems, and and help move that process along more quickly. Now there was a new National Academy of Sciences study on sunlight reflection research. Is there? Uh, um, what are what are some takeaways uh, on that from your perspective? And you know, it's, could that could that change things? Well, this is exciting. Um, so I've been involved with the National Academy of Sciences for a few years as a member of the president's circle, um, and many people may not be 
as familiar with the National Academy of Sciences as I am. Um, but, you know, they're a body that was established over 100 years ago, and and to, they're an independent organization, so they're not a, a governmental entity. But to provide independent scientific advice and counsel to uh, to the nation. And so they're often called upon by Congress or government agencies to put together, you know, groups of experts to study different questions as, a, as pertains to science and policy. And it was National Academy of Sciences Studies that were responsible for the national highway system, for the national park system, for our um, public university system, our national labs. And so, um, so when they do these studies, they, they have a process that's really effective at kind of looking at the state of the science and where it is and what it implies for how we should think about a problem like, say, nuclear energy today um, and where it might need to go and what we, you know, what we might need to research in future. And so they did a study in 2015 uh, to look at this question of, you know, what are technical interventions in climate that we might think about or use in, in the event that we needed to, to address uh, warming. And they went through all the sort of, you know, everything from mirrors in space to ping pong balls on the ocean and, and what have you, kind of vetting all of those proposals to say, you know, what, what would be the most potentially viable um, things that we could do and, and research. And which is how we landed at, at this idea of reflecting sunlight from the atmosphere, uh, in terms of reducing heat in the near term. And so now, um, based on, uh, uh, their work and also a proposal from Representative, uh, McNerney in the U.S. House Space, House Science, Space and Technology Committee, um, they're launching a, a, a follow-on study. And this study is designed to now help define a research agenda for the nation on how we should go about uh, R&D in the area of sunlight reflection and how we should go about governing that R&D so that we can ensure we get uh, objective answers to questions and that nobody's doing anything dangerous. So they're launching that study now uh, in the hope that in, you know, a year, year and a half's time, we'll have a report that can make recommendations to the country uh, for research in this area. And it's likely to include a lot of uh, ways that we need to augment our climate research so that we can understand the climate system well enough to think about doing any sort of large-scale intervention. That's great. I, I think it's, uh, it's really encouraging to see these, uh, these sorts of initiatives and, and, and hopefully as the, uh, as, as the data and the findings become available, that will enable more research to be conducted on, uh, on the backs of all, all these efforts. And, uh, I, I, I guess that dovetails very nicely with the work you're doing as well. Yeah, well, so, you know, I've, I've definitely been an advocate for, for that. And, um, and I think there will be other things in the future where, you know, the goal is, is to make sure from, from my perspective and Silver Linings perspective is that within the next 10 years, we have the understanding that we need and we've created some options to ensure that we're always keeping our people and our natural systems safe. 
So, you know, one of one of my uh, friends in the political community said, you know, you need to talk about a fire extinguisher for the planet. Maybe you're not a fire extinguisher, but, you know, we need to make sure that we have those systems. Uh, you know, if you think about it from an IT perspective, you know, we, we, we need continuity. We need to make sure that the, that the system is always operating within certain parameters. And so, um, so our job is, I think, over the next 10 years, because this research takes a long time to do. And so we've got to map it out and make sure that we have what we need over the next decade. So if things get hair raising, we've got some alternatives to to ensure that we're all okay. Well, do you think that I mean, this is in a sense, this is a a moonshot. It's a global moonshot of sorts. And one of the dividends that had come from a lot of the work that was initially applied to the the space program was uh, technologies that were able to be applied in uh, daily life or, or even for you know for commercial areas. And I could see that it's you know certainly you know in forestry and fishing and, and agriculture uh, there might be some real applicability from some of the the technologies, tools, and techniques that uh, that uh, that come from uh, some of the, some of the focus on on the bigger you know bigger climate problems. Are you um, uh, I'd, I'd just like to get a sense as we look forward. I mean, what you know, what what gives you the the the, the greatest optimism, and and what are you know what are some of the concerns that that keep you up at night? Well, firstly, I'll say that's a really great point, Ed. I think it's a really powerful point because I think that research into intervening in the climate system is a very focusing thing, and that the 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 specificity and, and literalness of the, the way you want to understand the climate system will lead to us understanding it more rapidly and, and with potentially new capabilities and interesting new ways of looking at it. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic that this activity of looking at interventions is likely to lead to a number of advancements that are really helpful in a lot of different ways. Um, so, so that's a terrific insight. Um, in terms of where I get optimism, I think there are two big places I get optimism. One is I'm here in Silicon Valley, and I have exposure to work that's being done at Stanford, at the Stanford Linear Accelerator, at, at Park, at uh, Berkeley, um, and, and I get contacted by people in related fields all over the world. And I believe, I truly believe that advances in materials science and you know, our understanding of, of what's happening at the subatomic level, our, um, our ability to make advances in energy, all of that is coming. I, 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 see, the, I see the, you know, the pipeline of 50 or 100 years from now, we will have the technologies that enable us to support sustainably on the planet all the humans we need um, efficiently. I, I believe that. Um, we have this little question, though, that the climate system problem looks like it's moving faster than that. And so what keeps me awake at night is that right now we don't have things that come on stream fast enough for some of these risks, big, big risks that we're running in the sort of 2050, 2040 time horizon. And so, so then the other thing that keeps me hopeful is that the full weight and force of the tech industry has not been applied to this problem yet. So if we can bring it on, I believe we can get some really big progress pretty quickly based on what I know of people in tech.
So that gives me a lot of hope. And when I talk to people, that gives them hope too. So I, now we just have to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think you're. Uh, well, the, I think the industry needs more. Uh, more people like you to evangelize the problem and 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 call uh, call issue a call to arms, as it were. I mean, we've got the uh, big investments in you know, sustainability of, of data centers on the part of Google, for instance, and uh, they've been very uh, innovative in in developing you know zero carbon footprint uh, facilities, and Microsoft as well. Uh, although they they are big consumers of power, there is just this uh, enormous capacity for innovation among these these companies that's so far been applied to uh, you know, power efficiency and carbon neutrality, but you know, applying a little bit of that uh, uh, brain horsepower to the, uh, to the bigger global problems it faces, I think, would be really we could accomplish a lot more i think a lot quicker than than uh than many would think oh i absolutely agree and i like I, right now today there are vastly more resources going into the question of you know what you're going to buy at the store tonight than have been applied to you know where the climate's going to land in 50 years right what and was that, so, that, that joke? i think it was uh what the, the one of the founders of hadoop was it jeff hammerbacher said i see the best minds of my generation uh focused on getting people to click on ads instead right. of solving the right. it's solving right. the great problems of, of 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 our era that's exactly right so and and we don't even need all of those resources to be applied to this we just need some modest fraction yeah uh, focus this way for, for pretty big jumps. Yeah. So, so that's an optimistic thing. Uh, we, we do need, we, we do need a call to arms. And I think you're, uh, you're extraordinarily articulate in the, defining the, the, you know, the challenge and the problem and, and the opportunity ahead. So I, I, I do hope that people who hear this podcast or, uh, will spread the word as well. And, and it's, it's great to hear you, uh, on stage at uh, you know Singularity Summit because that's a that's certainly a great great community. Well, that's a that is a fantastic community, yeah. um, and I appreciate your podcast community also. Yeah. Well, we'll let's let's uh, let, let let's hope that it, um, it it does the the message resonates as, as as much with others as it has with me for this uh, for this conversation. I. Um, well, I really, I really want to thank you, Kelly, for, for making the time to, to talk about this. I, uh, I, I do want to ask you my, the, the question I always ask of my, uh, my, my podcast guests, which is the, uh, the, your, your, your favorite recommendation of a, of a book or resource, something that you, uh, that our, that our listeners might, might be, uh, might benefit from, from checking out. Um, well, so I, if it's okay with you, I'm going to give you two films and a book. Oh, fantastic. All right. Um, so two films related to the, the problem space that we're in and, and that are sort of inspiring maybe about what we can do. Uh, the first one is a film called Chasing Coral, which is about uh, what's happening to the coral reefs um, in the face of climate change. But it's also... It, it's, um, it's a wonderfully entertaining and like a uh, really coolly shot film told from the perspective of an ad executive who, who wanted to figure out how to communicate something that people can't see. So Chase and Coral is an amazing film available on Netflix. 
Um, and the second one is a new one called The Hole. And it's a one-hour film available on YouTube uh, about, and it's the story of how people got together to solve the problem of the ozone hole, which is an existential problem for humanity a few decades ago. And they did it. And so this is a, a wonderful kind of brief film about that. And then as far as books go, uh, book I've been most commonly giving to people is uh, actually a book called Altruism by uh, a chemist and Buddhist monk named Mathieu Ricard, uh, R-I-C-A-R-D. And uh, he wrote another uh, famous book called Happiness. And he sits at the intersection of economics, science, and mindfulness. And it's altruism is an absolutely beautiful book. Um, I've so heard I'm fantastic things about uh, about him, and and uh, actually uh, uh, shook his hand once in, in in Hong Kong, but I I didn't get oh, to, excellent. Okay, didn't, didn't get to didn't get to see him speak. But those are those are terrific recommendations. So we'll put recommendations of that in the in the show notes and. Um, sure. Yeah, well, this has been a great conversation. Again, uh, this is this has been uh, Kelly Wanser, who is executive director of uh, Silver Lining, and uh, I'm Ed McGuire, the insights partner at Momenta Partners, and we we thank all of you for listening to another episode of our Edge podcast, and especially thanks to you, Kelly, for for sharing all of your thoughts. Thanks very much, Ed. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.